Hello, welcome to Science Book Shambles, an extra book shambles that we're now doing on a weekly basis with science authors and also scientists, in addition to the usual weekly episode of Book Shambles. You can hear an extended version of this interview by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash book shambles. I know I always say forward slash, but that's because I'm 51 years old. Here's the conversation. Hello, welcome to Science Book Shambles. This is, uh, we're basically doubling up the number of book shambles that we do in a week. So traditional book shambles remains every Thursday with all manner of people. Science book shambles predominantly on a Tuesday, certainly for uh, the next three to four months and probably actually far longer than that. Uh, we'll be going out where I'll be talking to different scientists, most of whom will have a book out as well, not necessarily um, all of them. And uh, I'll be talking about not merely their books, but also their life, uh, their inspirations and uh, I hope you enjoy them all. As usual, uh, for anyone who supports us uh, via Patreon, well, in fact, on this occasion, whether you support us via Book Shambles Patreon or for the kind of broader Cosmic Shambles Patreon, um, you will be able to get the full-length interview, but we're also making sure that all of these interviews in a shorter form are also available for free. But if you can support us via Patreon, that is really great because uh, currently, uh, basically, we have no work uh, because uh, I, I'm, I work live and live doesn't exist so uh if you are able to support us for our patreon that means that we can keep making you know four five sometimes six or seven shows uh, a week depending on the week i hope you enjoy them all and uh, i hope you enjoy this science book shambles and our first guest is someone who is, well, it's a wonderful thing, actually, because he has a very, very deep understanding of yeast from a cellular perspective. And I think the first time that I ever actually did an event with him, I realized that he has a reasonably deep understanding of yeast as well from the, uh, well, processes of, of fermentation, uh, which had happened uh, to make that hotel bar such a vibrant place till 4 a.m. Uh, he's a brilliant Nobel Prize winning scientist, tremendously passionate individual. I recently had him on the Infinite Monkey Cage talking about the question of what is life unsurprisingly we didn't manage to cover what life was in a mere hour so here he is talking about his new book what is life paul nurse uh, today, Science Book Shambles, someone who's very recently also on uh, The Infinite Monkey Cage, uh, someone who's, uh, the, the title of their book is one of the, the questions which basically the moment that you say this to a biologist, their face becomes tremendously crestfallen because uh, the definition is a, a, a changeable feast and no, none has ever been found, which has entirely satisfied everyone. Uh, it is What is Life uh, by Paul Nurse, and we're going to talk about this in a moment. But I want to, Paul, before we get on to talking about um, the contents of your new book I just wanted to ask you on about what is currently going on in the world with the pandemic and the reaction to it I remember you did a very good documentary about why people don't trust science and you talked to climate change denialists etc um, I think many of us at the moment are in getting all manner of debates from people who are telling us that you know, coronavirus was manufactured in laboratories, deliberately been brought in by the uh, capitalist system of the world, uh, and it all may well even be a fiction. Do you feel, since you made that documentary, and and since it does seem this kind of you know paranoid conspiracy thinking seems to be on the increase, have you found any effective ways of trying to communicate? with people who who feel you know this this kind of conspiracy paranoia well i think it is an issue because um particularly with the rise of social media a whole range of opinions get um a lot of exposure and um because um 
people are looking, if you like, for simple explanations and people to blame, they lock on to things that, um, that they hear. Now, how do we deal with that? Um, I think the answer is simple, but not simple to deliver. You need to have a system where um, scientists are trusted and trusted in what they say. And because in these um, issues, scientific issues in the public domain, um, because uh, um, the science is refracted through um, uh, different um, mechanisms like politicians or columnists and newspapers and so on, um, it's quite difficult to actually get back quite to where the science is. Let's take the, um, the COVID pandemic. We are getting bombarded with messages from um, the poor politicians who are having to deal with it, and I have some sympathy with them, at least some. Um, but um, uh, but they, they answer in the way they would deal with um, a, a, a sort of winning a political election, a sort of one-liner, um, you know, like get COVID done, they haven't done that one, but I mean, it's related to get Brexit done and we're going to fall into that hole soon as well. And um, and then there's nothing underneath it. And uh, and it's not that the science it, and the science itself is complicated. And then there's another issue, if I can say with it. We've got scientific advice that comes in Britain from, um, at the moment, Sage, Patrick Valance and so on. They discuss these things. Um, then... Somewhere it goes into a black box about what they do with that information and how they implement things. Um, the operational side of it, which also involves scientists, but usually different ones who are involved in um, delivering operational um, uh, uh, capability. And those two parts are not actually often very well connected. So what we're getting from the scientists analyzing the situation may not be what comes out of the other end once it's gone through the politicians, the Department of Health, Public Health things who are implementing it. And that's confusing everybody as well because it's much, um, it's much muddier. And with, let's take testing. I mean, something that um, my institute's been involved in, Francis Crick Institute. Um, the scientists said we need to test. Politicians accepted that. But then they came with, um, with a way of doing it, which is simply through centralized labs, very distant from where the tests were being made, which didn't make much logistical sense. And then the scientists who are, uh, get the blame because it's not actually working is the problem we have there. So it, I don't think it's getting better. And I think it's complicated. Right. I think that generally is the uh, is the issue, isn't it? Which is most of the tools of communication, which are uh, in, you know available to the public, are not necessarily adapted to deal with anything on a complex level. And so, something like a pandemic, you've got yeah, it's uh, we don't necessarily have the correct tools of communication. We really don't. And then maybe my answer was far too long, really, but it's something I feel rather passionately about. And a pandemic is one of the most difficult. It matters. We know nothing about the virus when it turns up. There's a lot of guesswork. There will things that we'll be getting wrong. And unless you have the trust of the public in the system, which is all the way from the science advice to the delivery, then it's going to fall apart as it has. 
But I also think it's not, you know, when you said you thought the answer, your answer was too long, I actually think that that's the opposite of what the problem is. Because I, I think that's, again, part of the problem we have is so much of our culture is, as, as you said, with the politicians. Well, it's a soundbite culture. Things are very complex. And it's also up to us to try and work out where we can go to where the answers may well be longer and may well be, you know, at, at, at times, it, there's not a simple singular narrative there are permutations, there are tributaries, there are many different ways. But this is this is why your book, What Is Life, is great, though, is because uh, we're going to segue straight in there. Um, it's because it is actually, it's very short, it's very pithy, and it is, um, we, I, I want to stop, before we, again, we talk about the book, though this is part of the book, what I love is you start with butterflies. You start with, and to me, in nature, the butterfly, we should never forget what a bizarre story of life that is. I mean, this, this, there's such a, that, that old line of, you know, Richard Feynman's the imagination of nature is far greater than the imagination of man but to go to to see the one creature turn into a creature which seems so that whole process is magnificent so what was it about butterflies in particular which that that's part of the story of how you became fascinated in biology well it is but of course what just to emphasize what you said this whole process of metamorphosis that we learn at school but do we fully appreciate how absolutely amazingly wonderful it is? This little green caterpillar going into some pupae and then turning into an amazing winged insect. I mean, it's magnificent. There's no other word to describe it. Now, I, you mentioned, I do, I do start with a butterfly. I start with a particular butterfly, even one called the yellow brimstone. It's a harbinger of spring. You, If you go out in March, early April, and you see a yellow butterfly running around the garden, sorry, flying around the garden, um, then it will be a yellow brimstone um, for sure. And I sort of, I don't quite know what I fully remember when I was 12 or 13. So it, it may be my story has a little bit of a mythical quality to it. But at some stage around that age, I saw a yellow butterfly. I seem to remember it flew over the garden fence. I seem to remember it fluttered about, it settled, I disturbed it, it went over the garden fence the other way. What I'm sure of is, was around that time I began to think, what is it that is um, similar between me and other living things like that butterfly? Because they're obviously very different, but we are obviously very similar in many ways as well. And that seemed to me to be a fundamental question of biology. And I now think it's probably the fundamental question of biology, actually, um, which is what is life? How do you define it? How do we distinguish between something that's living and something that is not living? And as you have already said, it's not an easy question to answer. And we stutter about, we wander in the fog and we come up with explanations, but they don't have the clarity of a dictionary definition and um i've done my best in this book um and maybe we can talk about it um but i fully recognize the limitations of what i've done well what i th- i was thinking when i said about the imagination to make nature that that Feynman quote of course the other fascinating thing about the imagination of nature is that actually when we do look at the body plan of such a variety of different creatures we find out that you know i mean you you talk rather beautifully there's a, a great line i can't remember which uh, biology lecturer used to talk about that sometimes creationists would be very angry and they're saying are you saying that we're related to apes and he said no i'm saying we're related to yeast and you talk about you know this this fant- incredible that, that we go back you know there 
our the structure of us the billions of years the, the what we share with yeast genetically seems to be quite remarkable can you give me a bit of the story of of, of what you discovered with that yes and i i talk a bit about this in the book because the book not only sort of discusses um some great ideas and what, how that helps us um understand uh, what life is but i sort of drop in there a few little stories about my own um life as a research scientist which um poor soul that i am was an obsessive interest in yeast and how it works and even a particular yeast called um called fission yeast now what we discovered and then which sort of leads to what you've just described is in yeast um my lab and my colleagues and myself discovered the gene that controls the reproduction of a yeast cell from one to two it controls that overall process it's actually quite um a, a key uh, set of genes um they encode or and regulate um uh, a proteins called cyclin dependent kinases and i really uh, guarantee i'm not going to talk much about um uh, uh, complicated enzymes and so on but cyclin dependent kinases and what the what this uh, uh, um, uh, uh, protein this enzyme does is controls the temporal progression through the cell cycle so it the ordered events that have to occur um when a cell is born when it undergoes division develops into a place where it then divides into two there's a whole series of developmental processes that go on there which are regulated primarily by this particular enzyme so uh, that was cool for me at least i mean you have um, a, a master regulator of the cell cycle but the uh, what i guess we wanted to know and when i say we the experiment i'm about to describe is done by a colleague of mine called melanie lee working in my lab and um we asked the question uh, are human cells the reproduction of human cells controlled in the same way and this seemed a, a, a totally absurd question to ask because we're so much aren't we so much more complicated and magnificent than the um than yeast and we struggled with conventional methods which failed we didn't get anywhere one year two years usual scientists mucking around not getting anywhere and then really in desperation um i suggested an experiment where we uh, we basically took a human gene library in fact the very first one that was made because this is now some years ago we didn't make it it was made um in another lab that very in the US, very gently just gave it to us we basically sprinkled um this human gene library onto a particular yeast strain a yeast strain did in this gene that controls Uh, reproduction this cyclin dependent kinase now because it was defective it couldn't reproduce so it would die but what we reasoned was if there is a similar gene to that in humans and if we were to sprinkle that onto the yeast cells and they took it up and it worked perfectly the cells would be go able to go on and reproduce and they'd form a little colony on the plate now isn't that absurd is that likely to work there's about 52 ifs in that um bit of reasoning there we did it and we got colonies growing and i said oh god it can't be right it'll be a contaminant you know just like flemings you know um bacteria growing you know flying in through the window or whatever and but it was a cliffhanger of a couple of months because i knew if this worked this was quite big 
Um, and we did all the controls and blah, blah, blah. And we ended up sequencing the gene. And I remember it came out on the computer like little ticker tape, you know, as the letters came out. And what it predicted is that the human gene was 61% identical to the yeast gene. And it was 297 amino acids long. And the yeast gene was 298 um, uh, um, amino acids long, not the gene, the protein that, that the gene makes. And they worked. The human gene worked in yeast. Now, that one simple experiment said several things. It says, one, the way in which cell reproduction, one of the basic properties of life, of course, the way it works in yeast, one of the simplest eukaryotic cells that you can find, is it's exactly the same as in humans to the extent that you can take the human gene and put it in there and it substitutes. That's, that's what it means. And what does that mean? It means that everything between yeast and humans, that includes fungi, plants, insects, yellow brimstone butterfly, um, animals, apes, or whatever, are extremely likely to be controlled in exactly the same way, which has turned out to be true. And since yeast and humans diverged one from another probably 1,500 million years ago, 1.5 billion years ago, remember dinosaurs only went extinct 65 million years ago. It's just a sort of, you know, barely measured, you know, barely noticed on that on 1,500 million years ago. It means that it's been conserved all that time and still works. Now, isn't that extraordinary? I mean, 1,500 million years, I have ideas about why that is the case, and you have an entirely conserved function that controls the cell reproduction in all um, living things we can see. It doesn't work in bacteria. That's got a different system. And um, it, it's a fundamental property of life. Does that, when you have moments of that kind of discovery, do you feel, does that philosophically affect you in terms of, you know, to, to me there is, the more I hear stories like this and reading your book and other people's books on, on, on similar subjects, to me it creates such a beautiful thing. I know sometimes it's called the web of life, the tree of life. I know the tree of life is in effect because we've got all things that need to go back and forth. All of those different you know, analogies may well, or metaphors may well not be effective, but they all create this sense of an incredible connection with everything that is alive on earth and and i do feel that that is something which science uh it is is philosophically rewarding for anyone there's several words i'll say to it the first is wonder complete wonder when it came out and i saw that i i i mean it was like just seeing something wonderful then when you think about it what does it mean it means we are fundamentally related to every living thing on the planet and that has a philosophical, for me at least, a philosophical outcome, which I do also mention in the book, that um, we should look upon life as our relatives. It may be a long time ago since um, we uh, shared a common ancestor, but they are our relatives. And therefore, do we not have some responsibility for our relatives? And shouldn't we be looking after the biosphere um, because um, they are related to us? But not only that, is because all life forms interact with each other. I mean, we're completely dependent upon other life forms. We don't fully recognize that. I mean, the food we eat, um, even certain amino acids our body makes are made by bacteria and so on that are in our, in our body. We are totally interacting with other life forms. So we've got to have a good relationship with the biosphere 
to even survive properly as a, a species. So those two sort of concepts of interaction, the word you use, and also being related means we have to have a comfortable, a more comfortable relationship with the biosphere. And that is, if anything, a philosophical thing that I do try to explore in the book and indeed end the book on that note. Now, I wondered, the, the title of the book, What is Life? Obviously, the, uh, that was also the title of uh, uh, the series of lectures that, that Schrodinger gave at Trinity in Dublin. And I know that the number of people I know who referenced those lectures. What do you think it was? What is the what is the enduring influence where, you know, this physicist gave some of the most important lectures on life, on, on biology? Well, I've got several things to say to that. One is... And I think mentioning the enduring nature of it is important. Often when popular science books are, uh, are written, particularly in biology, often the writers seem to be always trying to look over the horizon at things that don't really quite exist. And that often doesn't turn out to be very enduring because usually it doesn't exist, in fact, and, it, and certainly doesn't exist in the way that it happens. What Schrodinger wrote in a very thoughtful way, as you could imagine, for the great mind that he was, um, he tried to distill down the important concept that you have to think about. And he didn't come up with a mechanistic explanation, but he came up with an enduring idea. And the enduring idea was that... Um, and coming at it as a physicist, he was very concerned with the second law of thermodynamics and how you maintain order in a, a, a universe that is going towards chaos in a living organism over many, many generations and indeed millions and millions of years. And he came up with the um, uh, uh, um, conclusion there must be a code script, something encoding what life is and how it works and that it has to be of a nature which is enduring. And it, he, he called it uh, an aperiodic crystal, um, but the concept was that it was an enduring chemical which encoded information and was therefore protected from the decay um, that, um, that physics predicts that the universe has. And, of course, what that turned into, and Schrodinger gave his lectures, I think, in 1944 or thereabouts, um, actually, the same year that deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA, was shown to, or the first evidence, because not everybody believed it, um, to be the hereditary material. And it was made by scientists working in the U.S. in, um, uh, Rock, in the Rockefeller Institute. I was president of it 40 years later um, in, uh, and, um, and met, you know, I had an amazing story. It had three authors, okay? Uh, Oswald Avery was the first author but there were three and um the uh, one of them was called mccarthy and when i went to uh, i had a, a drinks party to welcome me when i became president and this little old man came up to me to introduce himself to me shuffled up in i think carpet slippers actually and shook my hand and he said um my name's matt matt mccarthy and i looked at him and i said you're not the matt mccarthy and he said, yes, I am the Matt McCarthy. <laughs> he published his paper in 1944, and I was talking to him in 2003, and he was still coming in stuff at the university. Amazing, isn't it? 
Anyway, it's enduring because Schrodinger thought deeply about it. He wasn't trying to just um, think of something clever over the horizon. He thought deeply about what life is and what was the basis of it. And that's why we still read it. And I read it when I was a student in the 1960s. Um, it's always stuck in my mind. I mean, there's been many books called What is Life, by the way. I mean, there's about one every published every two or three years, really. So, but Schrodinger's the one really that we remember. I wanted to ask you uh, now. This this might be too much. This this question might mean that we then have to go go have a full lecture because it is. There's certain things that when I see written in the book and I and I try and picture it because I think that's sometimes the problem with so, so perhaps more physics than, than biology. But you hear an idea and then you try and make a picture theory in your head. You try and um, it's when you talk about the idea, for instance, of the fact that the the gene has a message for for the cell. And then the cell has the apparatus to read that message. And, and you know, that, that whole information, as we know, is more and more whether we talk about the universe, whether we're talking about that life is information. Yes. So um, we're getting into sort of the ideas. And um, the two ideas that I want to mention there is we understand life in terms of chemistry because it, lots of chemical reactions and physics, physics doesn't quite get the same sort of attention as the chemistry, but that's crucial as well. So we have lots and lots of chemical reactions going on and um, motors, physical forces and so on. And, but these have to be organized. They have to be organized together so that the living thing, and I focus on a cell because it's the simplest living thing that has the attributes of life um, or the full attributes of life, and they, these, this cell is full of a range of chemical reactions and physical forces and blah, blah, blah. And, um, but it's got to be organized to act as a purposeful whole. It's got purpose. The purpose is to sell, to grow, I mean, in incremental ways, and then to reproduce itself. It also has to have other aspects like a hereditary system. This is all acting with purpose which comes about by evolution, by natural selection, which is another um, of these ideas. But to respond to your point about information, that means the chemistry and the physical forces all have to be organized. And that means that different parts of the chemical system have to be talking to each other. And you have to be therefore transmitting information from one part to another. But the whole thing behaves as an integrated whole. So information is critical to life. When people talk about information in the context of life, they normally think of the double helix encoding information. And there's a beauty there, too, about, by the way, of the linear code, which I also um, talk quite a lot about, which people don't quite emphasize enough, I, I don't think. We might get onto that a bit later. But it isn't simply DNA encoding. It is actually the whole damn shooting match is based on information on regulation, on feedback control, negative feedback, positive feedback, toggles, switches, um, uh, oscillations. The whole thing is driven by information. Now, that is fairly obvious and was close to what Schrodinger was thinking about, though he's thinking about it in a more narrower context. But I don't think it, information has quite had the same exposure as, um, as it should get, and certainly not as much as biochemistry and molecular behavior. See, that's what I find when you talk about in an individual cell. So within that cell is, you know, the, the, the full genome. Is that right? But it's 
if say it's a skin cell rather than a liver cell or a kidney cell uh that which is required that information that is required now this is the bit that when i just read this it's a very simple sentence you put in the book but it entails so much so within that cell switch on what is required for the crea- creation of skin but make sure you don't switch on what you need for the the liver and the kidney you know, that that is uh you know how 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 are we how do you picture that? When you think of that, what do well, you Well, I see? start with metaphors, um, really, because like you, I think in pictures, too. And I describe in the book um, man-made machines, because man- a man-made machine also works with, with purpose. It's been intelligently designed, a man-made machine, by a human being, which is um, supposedly intelligent, um, whereas um, the machines that we see in life came about by... Um, Darwinian evolution by natural um, selection. Um, But what it has to mean is that this machine, um, if we look at a, 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 I I talk about a steam engine. Actually, there's one thing about my book. Can I just say, there are no illustrations. Uh, And I thought about that. And I thought, I don't want to divert the intellectual attention with pictures I want people to picture it in your mind. Actually, maybe that worked with you. And um, I thought, I'm going to try and write it as clearly as possible, but let you imagine how how it works. And I, I hope that actually does very short and you can get through it um, um, very quickly. But anyway. Um, I think you're right, actually, because I, I think if you would try to illustrate this idea we're talking about now, for instance, it would end up giving me two sets of ideas to translate rather than, if you see what I mean, and I think it might, in some ways, muddle it, especially with the fact that you, you, you know the brevity of it. Well, it's like, isn't it like when you you, uh, you read a book, and then you go and see it on the film? It isn't quite how you imagined it. Yeah. The thing about the beauty of the word is that you imagine it yourself. The uh, it, it's interesting. Now that throw, I was talking to a biologist the other day who was talking about those arguments you have with physicists every now and again, and he said, you know, the one thing you can always win with is you still haven't got a unified theory, and we have. You know, they, we've got a mutation uh, uh, through natural selection. You know, all of those things, mutation, frontier, natural selection. You haven't got your unified theory, and I think that is an interest. I mean, how do you feel then? Do you feel that we we haven't really got our unified theory yet? We have the appearance of a unified theory, but in that 50 years time well i i think this is quite tough actually because i do honestly think in a very fundamental philosophical way which is beyond my comprehension that the human mind has taken us into a place where it, it where it isn't natural for us to think if i can put it that way now when you're hunting antelopes on the savannah you have a sense of time and three dimensions of space and you throw your spear or whatever and it all works for you, okay? And you don't think about relativity, okay? Same thought processes that generate the ability to throw a spear and kill an antelope, when taken further and further, lead to relativity, lead to quantum mechanics, lead um, to um, the um, standard theory in physics. And isn't that interesting? Because it goes beyond is our exist everyday existence, and the we can write equations down which don't quite make sense in the real world yet have extraordinary predictive power. I mean, extraordinary predictive power, like the standard model in physics, and uh, we 
we struggle. We, I mean, I think it's a, 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 almost a psychological struggle. And what I, all I was saying just before is that, um, that I think biology may go there, but we appreciate that the world is, is not straightforward that we're looking at, and we do our, our best to, and indeed, I mean, physics is the most wonderful intellectual construct. I mean, it is absolutely wonderful, but it isn't in our everyday world, and we haven't cracked it yet because we can't obviously relate um, gravity to um, the um, uh, uh, forces operating at the level of the atom and below. And um, I think biology will end up there too. See, that's why when you talk there about that point of the, that we have not evolved the talk because of the non-necessity until now, um, that bit where when we were doing a monkey cage about black holes and the point in which you get that we are information projected from somewhere else and two-dimensional, then things get very hard to deal with, much harder than any of those other ideas of magnificent forces inside at atoms which are defined as being predominantly empty space. To, to be these two-dimensional projections... I, I don't think the gazelle chaser was ready for that. I don't think so either. And, um, and, and it's a bit humbling too. I mean, it, we ourselves humble ourselves somehow, you know. Uh, you know, we've got this wet grey stuff doing chemistry between our ears and somehow it produces this, this thinking. I mean, this is a wonder of the world. I mean, um, we, we, we wonder how we can produce something that is self-aware and um, can love and can uh, feel pain and sadness and all these things but it also this wet gray stuff doing chemistry thinks up the theories of relativity I know, I know we're nearly out of time but i wanted to because you mentioned machines i wanted to ask you whether you had any consideration of this i was talking to um seth shostak from uh, from seti search for extraterrestrial intelligence and he feels that one of the things fermi's paradox which very, very briefly that uh, the the reason that we've not met the uh, extraterrestrials is there's a certain point of uh, of civilization intelligence a creature reaches so this is a very awkward pricey but but in which they will then destroy themselves and he believes that we will get away from that by the fact that what we will eventually do is create machines machines which will work faster than darwinian evolution in terms of their building up of information and that is the thing that will allow a remnant idea of us to eventually communicate and perhaps even meet uh, other forms of life across the universe so he sees that the an essential stage if we were to avoid fermi's paradox is ultimately an, an entire machine age i just wonder if you had any reaction to that well um I don't think I like it very much. That's because I I, I, I I quite like my grey matter uh, making me feel sad or happy or whatever. And um, I know it's a machine, but um, I, I, I'm not sure I want to go quite that far. But, you know, maybe I'm convertible. Yeah, well, this is uh, 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 the final. I just wondered as well if you have any reaction to the, the news this week uh, in terms of um, discovery of phosphine in the atmosphere of, uh, of... And I know it's very early stages and there's much to be done, but but again, we were talking about at the moment the only version of life that we have is the version of life as far as we know that began here. We can, we can go into panspermia if you want, but we don't need to go into panspermia. But if we say, you know, life that seems to have begun here... Um, Venus well, news... This came from left of, uh, of centre for me, I must admit. I mean, um, you know, we've, we've speculated about life in, um, on Mars and um, 
uh, Triton out there in the outer parts, Moon in the outer part of the solar system, and so on. And we're thinking about life forms that, um, that always that sort of are a bit Earth-like in some respects because we can't think of anything else. And uh, and it's worth thinking about whether um, other sorts. I make a case actually that. I think life forms will be based on polymer chemistry. It just may not be carbon polymer chemistry, but it will be based on um, on, on polymer chemistry because it combines information with chemistry. So that is such a clever a clever concept. Well, phosgene up there in the atmosphere of Venus, um, it, it, it's, it's very, very interesting because it, it is something that isn't made normally. Um, and uh, you could imagine by natural processes, so you could imagine life forms doing it. Um, I think the upper clouds of uh, Venus are pretty inhospitable, so that's why it's um, thought to, for life, and that's why it's thought to be a bit um, a, 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 a bit difficult to conceive of. But we have to check it. I mean, you know, the, it, it, we, it has to be investigated. I suspect in the end it may be that there's some chemistry going on that we're just not completely aware of in those extraordinary conditions they have, have in Venus, which, I mean, I can't remember exactly, but it's very hot and it's got all sorts of um, gases and so on around there. So maybe something could produce it. But they've done it carefully and they've looked at the obvious explanations that I'm just giving you. It doesn't seem to work. And so maybe maybe it's true. So let's have a look. Let's see what um, see whether it it, um, it it gets better evidence as as it's investigating further. Uh, when, when I was first reading that story, it reminded me of of your story about the the time where you went back to the bin, having <laughs> thrown away your sample, and, and then having had your Friday night dinner. You went, I'm just going to cycle back, and that you know going back and rifling through the bin was a journey towards uh in, incredible revelation. In the same way, I think it's Jane Greaves, isn't it? I think it's Jane Greaves who uh, had the information. <laughs> in the phosphine that you know she just went do you know what i haven't looked in this drawer for ages and i'm not doing much now let's just go through these charts one more time and that's one of the things that i love about again scientific discovery the idea that it may be methodical but within that methodical nature sometimes it is going back to the bin or just you've got a free afternoon and you happen to be scroll you know scribbling around some old results you had well, you know, let's let's try and think what it what, what the implication of that might be which is this word serendipity um, the point about some in different sorts of ways, people work in different sorts of ways, and where you are in scientific understanding, it's carried out in different sorts of ways. And when you're at the very edge of understanding, um, you really don't know where it's going. And serendipity plays an important role. When you come a bit further back from you know, where important science is done in putting ideas together, it, it's on much firmer ground in many respects. But if you're at the edge of things, um, serendipity of, of, often helps because you escape the railroad of your brain. One thing that's psychologically so interesting for me is what, when you do an experiment, you get an explanation for it. You can't escape it. It always dominates your thinking. You know, you think I've got this. You start running on what I call rails. So when I talk to my colleagues, some of my graduate students, if they still listen to me, which is, of course, usually the case, quite rightly, by the way. Um, given my age and pomposity, probably, but um, you you have to be able to jump tracks. You must realise that if you you run on rails, but usually there's ten ways to explain what you're looking at, but you just get homed in on one. Serendipity is useful for jumping tracks, 
Now, it doesn't mean that the track you're going to is right either, but it, it gives you a different perspective. So I think it's really critical. Brilliant. Thank you very much. What is life is out now, and uh, it's worth it. Not, I mean, I, 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 I think, as I said, I think it's, 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 it's an incredibly useful book. But if alone, just for, I thought your chapter on evolution by natural selection, your summary of that idea is just for for anyone who who may well you know struggle with that an idea or anyone who is about to have an argument with someone uh in terms of uh, you know someone who is anti evolution i thought it just beautifully condensed in that chapter thanks paul thanks thanks for the conversation thank you very much for listening so paul nurse's book what is life is out now make sure you go to an independent bookshop and get yourself a copy of that. Back on Sunday with a live stream Q&A with Robin and Helen. New book shambles next week. Uh, new science book shambles next week. Blogs, live streams, genetic shambles. Everything is happening at the Cosmic Shambles Network, as it always is. Don't forget, go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles, patreon.com slash book shambles to support what we do As we've said on social media recently, if literally 1% of the people that listen to one of our podcasts are subscribed on Patreon at just the lowest possible tier, we would not have to ask you for any Patreon pledges or anything for like three years. So if you are able to support the podcasts and the, the shows and everything else, please do. We would be greatly appreciative. And... See you next week or later this week, depending on when you're listening to this. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.